As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Understand, defend, and share your faith with confidence. This is Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Thank you for joining us on Unapologetic, helping you to understand, defend, and share your faith with confidence. I'm Ruth Jackson, and before we hear from today's guest, just a quick reminder to visit premierunbelievable.com for more shows, articles, and resources. And if you register or sign up for our newsletter there, you can get yourself a free ebook or multiple free ebooks if you fancy. But now for today's show. A Christian street preacher was recently in court for alleged hate speech regarding the Prophet Muhammad, and I'm joined today by Dr. Andy Bannister, who will share some of his thoughts on this topic. Andy holds a PhD in Islamic studies and is the director of SOLAS. He's written numerous books, including Do Christians and Muslims Worship the Same God? Andy, I'm aware that what we're talking about today is really obviously quite a sensitive topic and we need to handle it carefully. But before we talk to you about some of your thoughts, I just want to share a little bit of context as to why we're discussing this. So there was a Christian preacher who was arrested for criticising Muhammad and Buddha, um, but he's been found not guilty following a recent court hearing. Sean O'Sullivan was arrested in Swindon Town Centre on the 11th of March 2020 for alleged hate speech. And, and for sort of generally causing harassment, alarm and distress. And so basically what happened was he was preaching on the street and a member of the public um, suggested to him that Christians and Muslims worship the same God. And O'Sullivan responded by comparing Jesus, Muhammad and Buddha and using the Islamic Hadith, he told those that he was speaking to that Muhammad was married to a six-year-old and had sex with her when she was nine years old. But I guess before we sort of get into the specifics of all of that, would you just share a little bit about what the hadith is and how Muslims view it? Yeah, great question, um, Ruth. So a kind of really kind of sort of, you know, the sort of bluffer's guide to this. So so Muhammad, founder of Islam, um, his prophetic c- career stretched from 610 AD to 632 AD. When he dies at that point, the Quran hasn't been written down. There's no text or anything or so forth. In the decades immediately after his death, Muslims codified, they edited, and they put together the Quran. But then shortly after that, Muslims began collecting, uh, you know, sayings, uh, little traditions about what Muhammad said and did. More of Muhammad's biography and more of Muhammad's life and bits and pieces. Those got edited together so over a period of several hundred years and publishes what, what we now know as the, the Hadith. And there are various collections of them. Some are considered more more weighty, more canonical than others. And certainly for Sunni Muslims, who are the biggest of the Muslim sects in the world today, Sunni Muslims would take very seriously the fact they want to be following the example, uh, particularly of Muhammad. And you find that example by, by looking into the, the, the Hadith and into Muhammad's 
biography. So in terms of importance, the, the Hadith are not scripture, but they are incredibly important um, in, uh, in, in Islam. They're kind of second only to the Quran. And one other last thing, Ruth, would be to say that the Quran is largely meaningless if you read it on its own. If you mid open the Quran at random, um, there is very little structure, very little order. It's not like the Bible. If you open the Gospels, for example, and just start reading, well, there's an order to them. They're, they're narrative. They follow a they follow a sequence. The Quran doesn't, and so you need to know as a Muslim reader of the Quran. Well, how do I understand this verse? And the way that Muslims have traditionally done that is by answering the question: What was Muhammad doing at the point this verse was revealed? And to answer that, you need the Hadith. You need that kind of literature. So actually, the Hadith is the lens through which most Muslims traditionally, 1400 years have actually read the Quran. So it becomes incredibly important. Again, not quite the same level as the Quran, but pretty darn close. And and before we address the specific question of Muhammad's marriage and, and whether that might be, you know, tricky, tricky, a tricky topic for people to look at, what why is it such a sensitive issue for Muslims, do you think? Well the reason is, quite 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 frankly, that of course Muhammad is the one around the hot around whom the whole religion stands actually. So not merely do the, the Muslims believe he was the final prophet um, sent to, to human beings by God. They also believe, and again, especially you know, Sunni Muslims, others as well, would believe that he is the supreme example of humankind. Um, you know, he's not a, he's not God. They don't they don't believe he is, is God in the way the Christians believe Jesus uh, was more than just a man. But they certainly believe he's incredibly significant. And also, of course, um, he was also you know, the sort of father, as it were, of the Arab people before you know, Muhammad came along. If you take the Islamic histories, the Arabs were a disparate bunch of warring tribes. Muhammad is the one who who unified them, you know, through using religion to do that. And so really is like the father of the nation, the father of the, the empire. And so it's interesting, it's only analogous, but like, you know, if you go to Turkey and you insult Ataturk, you very quickly discover life gets quite exciting quite quickly. You go to Russia and you start throwing criticisms around about Putin, think life gets quite interesting quite quickly. And so there's some of that going on. There's the political as well as as well as the religion. And then lastly, I'd say, of course, Islam is is generally traditionally a shame and honor culture. What matters is how your behavior brings shame or brings honor onto your family, your community, and of course your religion. So Muslims would be very very upset and get very animated over anything that is said to be bringing you know shame onto Islam. And the you know the direct route to doing that is to be very rude about Muhammad. So obviously, bearing all of that in mind, we need to be quite careful about what we say because we don't want to offend any Muslims. But what does the Hadith say about Muhammad's uh, marriage and relationship with, with women? Well, just one comment very quickly there, then I'll answer that, Ruth. I think, I think the challenge actually for us Christians is going, how do we work out which offence is the right offence to cause? Because the gospel, by its very nature, is going to cause offence. You know, at some point... There's going to be that stumbling block. You know, Paul in First Corinthians, you know, says you know, the cross is you know foolishness to the Greeks and stumbling point to, to Jews, stumbling block to Jews because it's offensive. Um, so there's always an offensive quality, I think, to the, to the gospel because it challenges us. It challenges our sense of self worth. You know, we like to sort of think we are something, and the gospel says actually you're, you're not. The bad news is that actually you're a dirty, rotten, stinking sinner, and the good news is that God loves you tremendously anyway. Um, the question is then, of course, on top of that. Should there be other times that we cause offence beyond that? So there's an interesting discussion missiologically as to as to as to how we handle the whole offence thing. In terms of Muhammad and his marriage, the first thing to say to put some context here: Muhammad is quite interesting. When he he his first marriage, when he's 25, he gets married to a woman called Khadija, who's his senior. She's 40 years old. She's actually his boss. 
in the caravan trading business. I think he remained married for some years, actually, um, into his early kind of prophethood. Um, and then it's when she dies, suddenly it's like all restraint goes, or seems to. And Muhammad actually ends up marrying, depending on which sources you follow, something like 17, 19, 20, or 23 different, different women. Um, so a huge number of marriages. And in fact, you know, the Quran, which limits marriage to four wives, four wives for, for, for men, actually makes an exception for Muhammad and says he can basically marry whoever he likes, either from among you know the women around him or controversially from the slaves captured in marriage. And so Muhammad, again, there's no polite way of saying this, Muhammad did have sex slaves. He did have sexual relations. He did take women who he had captured in war, in one particular case whose husband he had actually been responsible for ordering him to be put to death. So there's a whole broader complexity here around Muhammad and marriage. And perhaps at the heart of it, the lightning rod of the whole thing, is his marriage to his, his, the woman who became his favourite wife, Aisha. Uh, she was the daughter of one of his closest and earliest followers, a guy called Abu Bakr. And according to the Hadith, according to the traditions themselves, this is not you know the words of hostile outsiders, this is the words of insiders. According to tradition, Muhammad indeed um, uh, was betrothed to her when she was when she was six years old. There's actually reference to you know, him visiting her when she was playing with her dolls and uh, and then um, consummated that marriage when she was nine years old. So the bare hard facts are actually there in the Islamic tradition themselves. The question then becomes what one does uh, with those, how one, how one talks about them and, and so forth. So do you think in some senses then that O'Sullivan was correct in implying that Muhammad was a paedophile, I, I suppose in the kind of purest sense of, of, of what that means when you look at the facts? Well, I suppose I would try and take a sort of somewhat nuanced kind of line here, um, Ruth. The problem is the word paedophile ha- carries a particular connotation in our culture, someone who is, you know, pre- predatorily attra- attracted to children. Muhammad doesn't seem to have exhibited that pattern through his lifetime. I mean, I think by today's standards, this relationship is wildly inappropriate. But I would put it into a much broader context that I think his entire behaviour around women actually was wildly in- inappropriate. It's not that this relationship itself is is problematic so much as his use of, of, of women and approach to women in, 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 in general. And I think, you know, today's culture where we're so sensitized to the slavery issue that there isn't enough light shed on the fact that Muhammad, Muhammad was somebody who actually engaged in slavery, who owned slaves and used them for his sexual pleasure raises incredible questions. So the question of does Muhammad's character measure up to somebody who, you know, is supposed to be a, a religious example, a religious leader, I think is a question uh, we can ask. And interestingly, I have, you know, friends who are former Muslims who actually, as they investigated some of Muhammad's character, this was one of the key issues in them leaving Islam. So, I mean, he's no longer with us, died a few years ago, but Nabil Qureshi, very well-known former Muslim, wrote a powerful testimony called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. You know, his chapter there on Muhammad and how he came to realize that Muhammad's character was not attractive um, it's very, very powerful, and this was part of this was part of it. So I would set it, Ruth, with that, with that broader say. I wouldn't use the word paedophile because I think that comes with a load of twenty first century baggage that is un is unhelpful. So I, my 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 position would be: let's critique Muhammad and critique him clearly and openly and unafraid and unfearfully for the things he can be critiqued for. But let's not do that by sort of making things deliberately more unhelpful by using twenty first century language it's just you know let's just let's just critique it by the standards today that's a really helpful um differentiation you're listening to unapologetic from premier unbelievable 
So I suppose, how would you have responded then to the the question that was kind of thrown at O'Sullivan that Christians and Muslims worship the same gods? What what would your response have been, do you think? Well, I think obviously, here's the first thing I'd say. It's very easy to sit here and, and, and tell O'Sullivan what he should or shouldn't have done. He's- also, he's, actually, that was, that's now my, my near hometown because I now live on the outskirts of Swindon. So um, <laughs> we, we weren't here at the time this happened. Um, look, I, I started engagement with Muslims and engagement with public evangelism at Speaker's Corner in London a ladder at Hyde Park and unconscious it's hard on the street because it's a it's a very intense atmosphere things are moving quickly some of those are not hard to, you always have to get new, nuance right but I think the way put it this way the way I would engage somebody if the setting was a bit calmer around that question I would say okay interesting you would think that I'd start by saying why do you think that it's always a good question to ask why why do you think where are they where are they coming from and then the other question I would follow up and I'd cover this in my in my book that you so kindly mentioned in the introduction um there's the word God. What does the word God mean? Because people assume that because Christians talk about God and Muslims talk about God, it must be the same God. Well, look, if you and I have a heated discussion about politics and you say you believe there is one prime minister of the United Kingdom and it's uh, and it's Donald Duck, and I believe in one prime minister of the UK and it's Rishi Sunak, we might disagree about who's the most effective prime minister. We might we might have a, a, a sort of fun little bet on who would be prime minister for the longest. Um, <laughs> but we clearly both believe in one prime minister, but we disagree about the identity. Prime Minister, I think that's going on with the Bible and the Quran. When you look at how the Quran how the Quran describes God, it is radically, wildly different from the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is a God who's relational, a God who can be known, a God who is love, a God who has demonstrated that love through suffering in the person Jesus on the on on the cross. And those are at the heart of that biblical understanding of who God is. In terms of the Quran, you've got a God who is distant and remote, a God who cannot be known, a God who refuses to make himself. No, a God who never even revealed himself to Muhammad. When Muhammad, you know, received the Quran according to Islamic tradition, the Islamic accounts say it was through an angel, through Gabriel, through a mediator. Huge contrast with the God of the Bible, who always is turning up and showing up and, and speaking face to face with his prophets and his spokespeople, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Think of that, you know, incredible encounter with Moses at the burning bush or or God walking and talking with Abe, with, with Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis three and that amazing promise in Revelation 21 that, that those who follow Christ will walk and talk with God again in the new heavens and the new earth. The Quran, by the way, doesn't promise you God in heaven. It promises you rivers of wine, crystal clear fountains of water, amazing banquets, young women for the men to enjoy. Uh, so the sexual thing continues, actually. But God is very much absent, whereas God is very present in the Bible. So that's how I'd have, I'd have begun dressing. I'd have gone, let's talk about what we mean by God. What a great topic. And by the way, if we want to compare Jesus and Muhammad, it's a great conversation to have, actually. I just wouldn't use the, the P word. I'd perhaps I well, I, I, I should use a different P word. Peace would be the one to talk about, I think, actually, rather than paedophilia. And O'Sullivan was obviously found not guilty of hate speech, but it does, I think, raise the question that just because something is legal to say, it doesn't necessarily mean that we should say it, um, you know, if, if we're in danger of kind of offending someone. I mean, how would you respond to that? You, you mentioned earlier that the gospel offends, but we don't want to go out of our way to offend people if we can avoid Correct. it, do we really? Well, I think it was N.T. Wright, who is well known in this parish, who famously once said, you know, if you're being sort of persecuted, um, it could be because you're being faithful to Christ. It could be because you're being a freaking idiot. I, I paraphrase. <laughs> he probably used more theological language. Than that. I think, and I think the same way goes with offence. Are you causing offence because you've shared the gospel as 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 winsomely as you can, as First Peter three fifteen says, with gentleness and respect, and people are still got offended. Right? Okay, that's that's fine. We can't we can't avoid that. We're not out here to just be nice. Um, 
but are you or are you causing offence because you've just been crass in your words, you've been rude, you've been, been unhelpful, um, in which case maybe the best thing to do is just sort of pause and reflect a little bit. And, and here is, I love the way you phrase that, because I think the challenge that Christians have in this, right, is to go, I think there's a couple of, there's a fight in culture right now. We do live in an age of cancel culture where where, where, speech, where speech is being restricted. It's, you know, Christians are facing that, you know, feminists and others are facing that. I think actually we should be fighting for freedom of speech. I think that is actually got, that is actually a, a Christian virtue because so much hangs on it. But just because you have the right to it, you're absolutely right, doesn't mean that you necessarily grab hold of it. I think Paul, wasn't he in First Corinthians talking about, you know, I've got all the rights, the, I've got the rights of the, an apostle. I, the whole thing is I could, I, could, I could demand the right to you because of my status, but I don't. I've laid those aside. And ultimately, Jesus, he had the right to, you know, step his fingers and the angels come down and, you know, bring the whole crucifixion to an end. But he didn't take that. Philippians 2, he laid all that aside. And so I think the challenge for us as Christians is, is knowing when to fight and when not to. One rule of thumb, actually, I found helpful is I think oh, if it's yourself and your own reputation and whatever you're fighting for and your own freedom, think a little carefully. If you're fighting for others, you can fight harder. Uh, because that way you're focusing on on others, and I think that applies to other things like violence, for example. Yes, yeah, the harder just war theory. You know, if someone strikes you, turn the other cheek. But if I see the old lady across the road being mugged, I have a duty to go and do something without thinking about my personal safety. Our culture encourages to put I at the centre, and actually, the gospel encourages to put God at the centre and then others out from there. You know, love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, and soul, and others as yourself. So all of that being said, how do you think we can share those potentially provocative beliefs in a sort of sensitive and culturally appropriate way, do you think, Andy? Well, one quick, one thing went around the Islam piece I found helpful, and this applies to other pieces too, Ruth, is the power of questions. And at the risk of a totally shameless plug, I've just announced, it's not available yet, but I've announced my next book is all over social media today because I've got an American publisher for this one and they're much more, they're much more marketing savvy. So like, release the cover today. So I'm, I've written a book called How to Talk About Jesus without looking like an idiot. Um, and the heart of that is questions, you know, is the art of asking and using really good questions. And I think we can do that around controversial stuff. So to give you an example, perhaps not the Muhammad's marriage example, but look, early on in my engagement with Muslims, I would often lean into the issue of Islam and violence. And I would read, you know, I would take my Muslim friend at Speaker's Corner or wherever, and I would, I confess, perhaps bash them around the head, the head a bit with Surah 9 verse 5, the so-called sword verse in the Quran, one of the most bloodthirsty verses in the Quran, and and quite frankly, I didn't get anywhere. Um, and I look back now and go, mm, it wasn't the most helpful approach. Actually, I learned within a few years it was far more powerful to say to a Muslim friend, you know, look, I was reading the Quran last night because I knew we were going to chat today, and I came across this verse. I came across Surah nine verse five, and it really troubled me. But then I reflected. I went, well, this is not my text, and this is in one sense not my problem, but this is your text, my friend. What do you make of this verse, and and how do you handle it? Um. And they just leave the silence hanging. That can be almost more effective. And then if they say, are you accusing? They say, no, I'm not accusing. I'm asking. And you could do, I think, the same in Muhammad. And say, you could say that when I read the Hadith, I see these accounts of Muhammad marrying many women, taking sex slaves, of marrying Aisha very young. And I find that really tough. But I'm just conscious that I'm a Christian. I'm not a follower of Muhammad. I'm a follower of Jesus. But you are a follower of Muhammad. What do you make of it? And what do you think of it? And... How do you, you know, deal with this? Um, so ask the questions, and you can say you, the same approach works with our atheist friends too. You can you can shed the light on aspects of their worldview, ask questions, and then let, let them face the difficulties rather than 
I think that that gets us further sometimes. And of course, Jesus did this, right? Jesus asked 308 questions in the Gospels, and I think only answers eight of them directly. <laughs> so would you say then that questions would be probably one of the most effective ways of doing this sort of interfaith, interreligious dialogue? That's an interesting question, Ruth. Why do you ask that? <laughs> yes, I think, I, I think so. I, I think so. Or well, the other thing that works really well, but I appreciate it doesn't work on a street. One of the things I've done over the years I've really enjoyed and found huge fruit from is creating space for genuine dialogue. So one of the events I often do, and I mean, I lasted one of these about four or five months ago at a, a big university in Scotland. You know, you get a, get a Christian speaker, get a Muslim speaker, take a topic, and you might take Jesus or Muhammad. You might feel free to take something slightly more edgy. Or you might take something less edgy. I think in this case, uh, we, the one we did at Dundee University was um, what, is, what is God like, which is interesting. And then what happened there was the, you know, the Muslim guy had 15 minutes. Talk about that question from the Islamic perspective. I took 15 minutes from the Christian perspective. And then we opened it out to Q&A from the mixed audience. And we got into some good territory. You know, we got into the tricky stuff. But it's given space and it's given both, both, both sides time to set their positions out. And actually, one of the things I like about Speakers Corner was there was lots of to and fro. There were Muslim speakers. There were Christian speakers. There were debates. There were dialogues. There was confrontation. It all worked. The danger is obviously like this chap in in in, in Swindon. I'm not I'm not saying he shouldn't have done it. Street preaching is a you know is a is a noble profession. We need perhaps more of it. Um, but because he was it was just him, then I think obviously you run that risk that you're going to get sort of you know in the trouble that you you are. Um, but also to say, I, mean, I just want to caveat that with perhaps we need a bit more boldness. Hey, you know, as British Christians, we can be a bit on the back foot. We're quietly, quietly, softly, softly, and I. I get, actually get quite excited sometimes when I see street preaching, good street preaching. It does it does work. I've got friends who do it. I've got friends who've seen responses from it. Well, I suppose as we finish, is there any advice that you would give to someone who wants to kind of engage in these more conversation, these conversations in a, in a more public way, sort of share their faith in a more public way? You have obviously done a fair bit of stuff at Speaker's Corner and in other contexts at universities and things like that. What advice would you give either to someone who's currently doing it or... Someone who, you know, listening to this is thinking, actually, Andy, I do want to be more bold. I want to be more public in my faith. What advice would you give to someone who's who wants to do that? Good question. Well, very cheekily, I would I would say, um, first, do check out the SOLAS website. You can just Google SOLAS, S-O-L-A-S. Firstly, you'll get us in safety of life at sea. That's not us. If you're drowning, call them. If you want evangelism help, call us. We're about third down in Google. And you'll find there's loads of resources there. Um, we've got you know podcasts, videos, articles on sharing your faith on the kind of common challenges and stuff. So take some time there. It's all free. Make, make use of it. And it's not just ours. We've interviewed and spoken to hundreds of people doing sort of evangelism ministry in different contexts. I think you've been on it. So I think we had you on the podcast once. We've had Brian, Justin Briley. So I've lots of good stuff there. So, so get resourced up. Secondly, I would say, if you're thinking about some more street-based stuff and you're in the London kind of area, do you get a speaker's corner? Um, at Hyde Park on a particular Sunday afternoon because it's really eye-opening. It's quite scary when you first get but actually it's really eye-opening. You'll see others doing it. If you see others doing it, either at Speaker's Corner or wherever, actually encourage them. You know, go up to the Christian you've heard preach on the street and go, hey, that was really interesting. I like what you did there. Why did you do that? Because it'll encourage them and you'll learn stuff. So learn from others. And then I think the other thing, Ruth, I'd say, perhaps this is a mistake that this gentleman made in, in Swindon. I don't know. Don't do on your own. See, at Speaker's Corner, which was really tough, we didn't do on our own. There were always two of us on, on the ladder, which means if one of you gets stuck or you know, you're know you not sure what to do, the other one can, can help. We also have team members there praying for us. There were usually about 20 or 30 of us who would meet at 
All Souls Langham Place Church in London. Get together, pray, go out, do the stuff at Speaker's Corner. We had people on the ladder, people in the crowds, talking to people. And then afterwards, we'd go out for a KFC. Other fast food outlets are available. And uh, <laughs> we would debrief, we'd pray for one another. And then you chat over it. If you, if you did something wrong, then it's great to have a couple of people who you trust. Go, you know what, Bannister, that wasn't helpful. Don't do that again. And you learn. Um, I think sometimes it can be tough if you. So I, when I see street preachers who are like lone wolves just doing their thing on their own, I mean, 10 out of 10 for the courage. But there's a reason that Jesus sent people out in twos, right? So so go out. And that also can sometimes save you from trouble because, you know, a good wingmate, you know, in the situation where perhaps the conversation is going to a debt into area can come along. So go, just let me help you out here. And I love the fact that in my early days on the street, I was not on my own. Andy, that's all been so helpful. Brilliant. Thank you so much. You're welcome. It's been great chatting, Ruth, as, as ever. Thank you for joining us on Unapologetic with me, Ruth Jackson. As always, you can find out more about our guests through the links with today's show. And please do let us know what you think of the programme by emailing unbelievable at premier.org.uk or you can get in touch on social media. Thank you for listening and see you next time. You've been listening to Unapologetic. For more shows, resources and our newsletter, visit premierunbelievable.com.